Thank you. Hello, everyone. So great to be with you again. Um, I love church, and so I missed it when we didn't have church, and we missed church for various personal reasons. It's just good to be back with my family. Um, Happy New Year, if I haven't spoken to you. I'm so excited about the series that we're doing. We're doing this series where it's called Giants Must Fall, and basically what we're doing is we're looking at the nation of Israel and how God took them from one man to a nation in Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. And the reason that we look at these Old Testament stories, these sort of overarching stories in the Old Testament, there's loads of them. The reason that we do that is because they're an allegory, they're a metaphor, they're a picture of what God does in our lives and our salvation. And so there's lessons that while we look at the story of what is going on in the nation of Israel in this example, we can learn lessons about what God's doing in our lives. And we can take stuff away from that. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, there's just so much that I would love to say in the story. Uh, I don't know about you. I've read the first, like, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, more than any other books of the Bible, right? Because I, every, I keep trying to do that thing where you read through the Bible in a year. And so I know Genesis like backwards. Exodus I know pretty well. Leviticus not so much. Numbers, and then by the time I get part, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Well, I do. But, but, but I, I know disproportionately much about the first five books of the Bible because I keep trying to read the Bible from beginning to end. And, and, and failing at it. Anyway, enough about my failures. So we're picking it up where the nation of Israel uh, are a nation in Egypt and they're in captivity, right? Um, I'm going to assume that we all know how that happened, but there's this nation of Israel and they're in Egypt and they're in captivity. And that's really a picture of how every single one of us starts our spiritual journey with God. Every single one of us starts our spiritual journey with God in some kind of captivity, some kind of slavery. We might be slave to our passions. We might be captive to bad thought patterns. We might be captive to something that someone said to you when you were growing up in primary school. You might be captive to all kinds of different things in your life. And we start off our relationship with God in the state of captivity, but the good news is God comes to them and he says, I'm going to set you free from your captivity with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so God starts going to work and setting them free, and he brings these plagues into the nation of Egypt. And there's the cool thing about the plagues, I think there's nine of them, but the plagues, each one of them was dismantling one of the Egyptian gods. So the Egyptians worshipped the god of the sun, and so God blacks out the sun. And they worship the God of the Nile, and so God turns the Nile into blood and takes it from a thing that gives life into a thing that brings death. God was dismantling the gods that they had in Egypt, and what he was doing was he was showing them that he is greater than all the gods that they had ever known up to that point. And so God's dismantling these gods, and it's like that when we're in the state of captivity and God starts doing these things to show himself to us, and we start seeing these things about God that we thought might not happen, and so you hear this testimony, or you hear the story about what happened to this person. You go, oh yeah, that's, that's quite amazing. And you get moved by that. And then you go to church because someone dragged you along to church. And you go, actually, to my great surprise, the preacher had something useful to say. And then you hear this song and it moved. And God's starting to do stuff and show himself to you and starts to get our attention. And then ultimately, 
there's this final plague that God brings onto the nation of Egypt. And the way the plague worked was this. He said he was going to wipe out, he was going to kill every firstborn in the whole nation, both animals and people. He was going to kill the firstborn unless they did this. Unless they took a lamb and they killed it and they sacrificed it and they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts and the lintels of their, of their houses. And so when the angel of judgment passed over and came and brought the judgment on the nation of Egypt, when it saw the blood, of the lamb, it passed over and didn't bring the judgment that they deserved. And God does that with us where Jesus has been given as the lamb who was slain. And when we put our faith in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, that God comes and the judgment that we deserve, he passes over and he doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. And we get life where we should have had death because of what Jesus has done for us. And then we know that at this point, Pharaoh says, enough for you people, I've had enough, go get out. And so they head out and they head out towards the Red Sea because that's where God had led them. And so they go towards the Red Sea and then Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends the soldiers off and says, go and get them. And so they're standing in this position and they've got the Red Sea on the one hand and they've got the army coming at them on the other hand and they don't know what to do. And we know the story, God opens the Red Sea and they pass through on dry ground and they escape from captivity and they are set free. And God closes in that Red Sea over the soldiers that were coming off them and wipes them out. And they find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea and they are free through this incredible, miraculous work that God does to set them free. And every single one of us, when we put our faith in Jesus and God comes and he sets us free from captivity, from our slavery, we need to understand that it is an incredible, powerful, amazing miracle that God has done for us. Equivalent to splitting the Red Sea. The fact that God would take us from our slavery into this new state. And so the nation of Israel find themselves in this place and they're singing songs of happiness and then they realize they're in a desert and there's no water. And so God gives them water from a rock to drink. And then they go, we got no food. And then God brings them bread, basically. Every morning they wake up and there's manna for them to eat. And they've got enough bread to eat. And they've got more than enough. And they eat the bread. And then they go, no, we're thinking we're going to go low carb. And so we're not going to have any more bread, God. We want some meat. And so God brings them quail. And they catch the quail and they eat the quail so much so that they start to get sick. Like most of us around Christmas time, we eat so much meat. We don't know what to do with ourselves anymore. Can't wait to see a salad. And they eat all this meat. And then that God provides for them and he is there for them and there's these incredible miraculous acts as God provides for them. They have an incredible encounter at Mount Sinai where God comes down on, on the mountain like a cloud and there's lightning. They, have, they, they set up the tabernacle. This, uh, this is one of my favorite things in the Bible. They set up the tabernacle and they bring this offering and I just want one time for God to do this in church. They bring the offering and they bring the offering and then fire comes out of the presence of God and consumes the offering. It's not like fire, like we go, oh yeah, the fire came down. No, like fire came down and consumed the offering and the people respond and they shout for joy and they fall on their faces before God. There's these incredible encounters where God is providing for them. He's giving them what they need. He's giving these incredible encounters. And so often it's like that when we first get saved. We've had this incredible thing where God's done this thing and he's taken us from slavery into freedom. And it's like in that time, it's just the best time to be saved. Like every song feels like it's been written by Ed Sheeran. Like every sermon feels like it's meant for me. We go and we start to make faith steps and we start to tithe for the first time and we experience God providing. And it's just this time where we experience God in this incredible way. But then we get to this point where we're going to pick up the story in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, 
which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So God's telling them to get 12 guys together and go and look at the land that he wants to give them to. And don't you think it's interesting that God says in this very phrase that he's going to give them the land, but he still wants them to go and spy on it. If God's going to give it to them, why do they need to go and spy and check it out? Right? Because up until this point, God has been leading them moment by moment with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And every time they needed to go somewhere, God led them moment by moment so they knew where to go. But when it comes to taking the promised land, God doesn't just lead them moment by moment. He says, I want you to go and look at the thing that I'm going to give you. God's doing a fundamental shift in the way that he relates to his nation, Israel. He's taking them from where he's doing it for them, and he's including them in the process, and now he's doing it with them. See, up until this point, God has done everything for them, but now he wants to do it with them, and the reason that he wants to do it with them is because God is trying to do something in them. You see, God wants to do, ultimately, he wants to do a work in us. And to get us from the place where God's doing it for us, which is great, it's a nice place to be, but he wants to do the work in us. To get us from the place where he's doing it for us to in us, he has to do it with us. It's like this. I have these three like incredibly cool children. Uh, there's a baby one, 15 months. And uh, last, last service, I couldn't remember the age of my kids, which is why Sandra's helping me at this point. Um, my son's three and a half and my daughter's almost five. And... Like, I love to play with them, right? And we'll be playing outside, and they'll say, Daddy, I want to go in the tree. So I can pick them up, and I'll put them in the tree, and they'll sit there, and it's fun. But then one day, it comes to the point where they go, Dad, I want to go in the tree. And I say, okay, cool, climb. And they say, Dad, I can't. I say, no, climb. You can do it. And so they start climbing, and then they get to a point where they're scared, right? And they go, Dad, I can't do it. Help me, Dad. Help me. Put... And I go, I go up to them. and say, listen, I'm here with you. I'm going to be with you. I will not let you fall but you need to climb this tree by yourself. Now, I know some of you want to call child protection services on me at this point, but I promise you, so far, my kids seem okay. And I go to them, I say, I'm with you, and then I start talking them through it. I say, you see that branch? Reach and grab that branch. Now, put your foot over there. Now, pull there and push there, and, they, and then they manage to get up, and they finally get to the point where they climb, and they go, Dad, I did it. I climbed the tree. And, I go, and it's like the weak part of me goes, yeah, you did it. Um, but I, I let them have their moments. And so they, they've gotten to the point where they climb the tree. You see, what, what's happening is now, instead of doing it for them, I did it with them because I wanted to work something in them. And my kids go to sleep that night knowing that they can do something they didn't know that they could do that morning when they woke up. God wants to do something where we learn about something in us. In order to do it in us, he does it with us because he doesn't always want to do it for us. He doesn't want us to stay like little children. See, so often we look at this and we go, but God, I liked, I liked the miracles place, right? I liked when it was all being done for me and you were just providing the manna and you were providing the quail and everything was dandy. I want to live in that place where it's all God and none of me and it's all miraculous. And when we think like that, we might miss the fact that God working with us might be the biggest miracle of all. Because you see, the fact that the God of the universe has the patience to work with me because he's trying to get something into me is incredible. See, it's a lot easier for me to just pick my kids up and put them in the tree. I can just do that. That's like so effortless. But to sit there and cajole them and argue with them and say, no, I don't want to hear about it. Keep going and encourage them and guide them and 
all of that stuff, to do all of that takes time, but it's because I have a good plan for their lives. Your father has a good plan for your life. He's got a promised land that he wants to take you into, and he wants to work with you because he's trying to get something in you. And that's a miracle. You see, we never leave. It's not like there God was doing it all for me, and so it was miraculous. No, every time God does something in me, that's a miracle. Every time I have patience for my children, that's a miracle. Every time I put my wife's needs ahead of my own, that's a miracle. Every time I'm considerate to one of my colleagues, that's a miracle. Every time I look at my bank balance and I see that there's not enough money to get through the month and I don't freak out, that's a miracle. And it's a miracle because God has done a work in me by taking me on a journey where he was doing it with me. So the story goes on and they, and they go and check out the promised land. And it's everything that God said it would be. It's incredible. There's milk and honey and there's incredible fruit that says that. And they carried the fruit back for them to see. Like the bundle of grapes was so big that they put it on a pole and they had to carry it between the two of them. And the, the promised land lived up to everything that God said it would be. And so they come and they give the report to Moses about what they saw in the promised land. It goes on, it says, We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. There's two things we've got to see here. First of all, if we want to be able to take the promised land, we need to understand that there's going to be giants that we're going to have to face. There was this incredible land, this incredible thing that God wanted to do for them. There was this incredible blessing. There was this inheritance. There's this thing that God had destined for them for hundreds of years. But, and God has an incredible thing that he wants to do in your life. There's stuff that you don't have in your life now that God wants you to have in your life now. There is peace that God wants you to have where you've currently got anxiety. There is joy that God wants you to have where you've currently got depression. There is blessing where we don't have blessing. There's relational health where there's division. There's blessing that God wants to give you, but you've got to understand, if we want to take the promised land, we've got to face our giants. And so these 12 guys go and look, and 10 come back and go, the giants are too big, we can't face them. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb, go, no, 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 we should go and take it. You ever have those people in your business meeting, you're looking at the numbers, everything's bad, you're going, guys, this is terrible, I don't know what you're going to do, and there's two guys that pop up and go, no, this is actually great. I want to, sit down, <laughs> quiet. Right? What, what, what makes the two look at the promised land and go, we should take it and face that giant, versus the 10 say, no, it's too big, we can't face it. Is it. Are they just positive psychology people? Are they just those glass half full people? Are they just possibility thinkers? You know, my wife's like this. She just sees opportunities and possibilities no matter what. And honestly, it's the only thing I wish I could change about her. Because I will come home and I will have a good moan and a complaint and I'll explain to her very systematically and thoroughly why everything is wrong and she will then respond to me and say, well, at least there's this that's positive. And I'll say, listen, don't bring your positive psychology, positive attitude to my moan. I'm having a good moan here. Like this might be the only thing I'm naturally talented in the world is moaning and now I'm trying to have a good moan and my wife's trying to tell me how the thing that I said is bad is actually good. Like are these two, Joshua and Caleb, are they just optimistic, positive people, or is there something else going on in them? Let's read on. 
But the men who had, so, so Caleb said, we should go and take that land. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. You see, they faced something. They went into the land and they faced something that made them fearful. See, the thing that might be making you fearful right now might be external to you. And it might start externally. But how big that fear gets happens internally. You see, they, they, it says they spread a report and they, they increase the fear. You see, we can either partner with fear or we can resist fear. And there might be a legitimate reason for your fear. There might be something going on in your life external to you that makes you fearful. But how big that fear gets to is up to you. Because it starts externally, but it grows internally. And we can partner with fear about the ways that we talk about how things are going. And we can talk, we do this all the time when we talk about our country and we talk about the elections that are coming up and we talk about the economy and we talk about Trump and we talk about the wall and we talk about all these things. We can partner with fear and we increase the fear. And though there might be reason to fear, how big it gets in our lives is up to us about how we think about the fear. Instead of partnering with the fear, we can resist the fear. The scripture goes on and says, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. You ever notice that when we're fearful, we start to exaggerate? Right? Like, it's like not that this thing went wrong, like everything's wrong. Right? And these people are clearly exaggerating. They're saying the land devours them. No, the land doesn't devour them. You just went in and came out and you're fine. No one got devoured. The land doesn't devour. And they say, all the people are of great size. Like, no, they can't possibly all be of great size. Like, I get that in Pretoria, they generally are of bigger size. But they're not all of great size. You ever notice, people love this all and everything. I get it all the time. People say, no, everyone feels this way. And I say, oh, really? Everyone feels this way. No, no, everyone. No, okay, tell me who. No, everyone. No, no, I want a names and list of people who, oh, there's three people that feel that way. But you've gone and had a conversation with those people, and it's increased in your heart, and you've partnered with fear, and the fear has increased inside of you, and now it's everybody, but it's actually just the four of you. Because we go through this thing where we partner with fear, and we start to exaggerate, and this thing gets out of control. It goes on, it says, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anacom from the Nephilim, We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. This is the root of the problem. It says that they saw themselves as grasshoppers in their own eyes. You see, these people had all grown up and lived as slaves. And their parents had been slaves, and their grandparents had been slaves, and their great-grandparents had been slaves. All they knew was slavery. They knew what it was like to be at the bottom of the food chain. And so they just know this diminished view of themselves because of their experience as slaves. And so now God's saying, I've got this wonderful thing that I want to give you. I've got this incredible destiny for you, and you've got to go. And then when they look, they see, to take this thing, I've got to face giants. And they look and they go, I can't possibly face that giant because I'm a grasshopper. See, the reason we can't face our giants isn't because they are too big, it's because we see ourselves as too small. See, they weren't really giants and they weren't really grasshoppers. But every single one of us has areas of our lives where we think of ourselves as a grasshopper. And you might have some area where you've built up some sort of competence and you feel good about that, but every single one of us has an area where we see ourselves as a grasshopper. I'm like this, 
I am, generally speaking, have faith for family and for marriage. I just, that's one of the things God's done in me. And I have great faith that God wants to bless my marriage. And I have great faith that God wants me to raise up godly children. And I don't stress about that. I have faith for it. I have faith for it for me. I have a faith for it for every marriage in this church, that God wants to bless your marriage. Like, I believe that. It's just something that God's put in me. But when one of my kids gets sick, I fall to pieces, man. I'm like, I lose it. I'm like, Sandra has to comfort me and the children. And so in those moments, I have to phone my friends and go, bro, please pray for my children because I don't have any faith for this right now. And at the same time, I've got these incredible friends who have incredible faith for healing and they're going around praying for people and people are getting healed. But then when something goes wrong in the country and there's an economic downturn or the crime rate's going up, they have no faith for that. Every single one of us has an area in our lives where we see ourselves as grasshoppers and we see the giants as too big. And I've asked my wife, Sandra, to come up here and help me talk about this because she deals with this stuff on a day-to-day basis. Um, for those of you who don't know, Sandra leads the counseling ministry um, in the church across all three sites. And so I thought she could be helpful. Oh, I left my notes behind. And so I thought she could be helpful in helping us understand this. Hello, my love. Um, so you have people who come to you for counseling and come to the counseling ministry because they've got some giant that they're facing and they've realized that they can't face that giant alone. And so they actually, these people are incredibly courageous because they're facing their giant, but they're coming and getting help to do it. Um, what are some of the common giants that you often see in your counseling room? Hello, everyone. Um, the strange thing is people don't normally come and go, I've got a giant that I need to slay. Um, they generally come and going, I'm stuck in a pattern. There's something I keep doing. I don't know how to stop. I know it's wrong. I'm angry. I have lost something or someone that I just can't get over it or I keep trying to apply something, some truth and I just can't seem to believe it. Um, It's not that they come with a giant but they come with something they just know is not sitting right. It's not moving. Some of them have big things. There was an event that changed but often it's, it's smaller things and we lead them on this journey where we get to look at the why they're behaving that way. And generally, they look, we're looking at their, belief set, their set of beliefs, their belief patterns, because we behave how we believe. And we, through a number of questions and a number of looking at how life has treated us, we start realizing that we believe something because of life, and we behave off the back of that. And basically, these belief patterns are always lies. Sometimes they're half-truths, Sometimes they're warped truths, but they're always not full truths. They're lies. So in our example of the Israelites, they were seeing those people as giants, which they probably weren't, and they were seeing themselves as grasshoppers, which they definitely weren't, and that wasn't true, but they were believing it. And, and I think you've mentioned to me before, like they have this belief, and then life happens, and it sort of reinforces that pattern of beliefs. Yeah. Um, what are some of the lies that you see that people believe then? So often it's a big life event, um, abuse, my dad was an alcoholic, I've lost my mom, those types of things, that, that can be a big life event, but even in that case, it's so often that when the, those people come, it so often wasn't that. Like, yes, that was really bad and that wasn't great, but it's the belief that came out of that. Um, and like, I've had cases where there's, like, the reason they came was massive, but where the belief came was in grade two, where a teacher told them they never would. Actually had very little to the massive. Mm. 
And then the massive happened, and the devil said, yeah, you see, you never would. They told you, it's true. This is you. This is who you are. And life just kept reinforcing it, and the thought pattern kept reinforced, and there were just hooks in that lie that just made it so believable. Cool. You've mentioned to me that the people come in with a whole lot of different lies that you ultimately find and things that they believe that aren't true, but you've mentioned to me that basically all of the lies that people believe ultimately boil down to like a handful of lies that they might believe. What are those? So in Genesis, which Ross knows really well, um, it's, it p- clearly paints a picture of us and our relationship with God and that God creates us to be loved, have complete love in Him. He is love. God creates us to have value, which means to have relationship, to find value in each other, and He creates us to have a purpose. He puts us here to do something good for Him. And that is warped through life. And we begin to start feeling unlovable, that if not all unlovable, there's something about me that if they knew, they would never love. Mm. Or they find that we're unvaluable, we we compare, we we can't do that, we don't have enough, or I can't keep a relationship because they don't know. They don't know the real me. Or they're purposeless. Like, why am I actually here? What, what is the purpose for me? What was the use of this? Cool. And so when people realize that they have this lie and they suddenly see it for what it is, what's their response or their reaction to that? As I said earlier, they generally rip their clothes and beat their chests. <laughs> um, no, not at all. It's normally really sore. You're exposing a wound that's been there for a while. But it's that pain that brings relief. It's, it's sore because you realize there's this lie that you've done so many things based on the belief that was true, but now you can shift. So often like that session or the next session, they'll be like, oh, I've just felt a relief. There's a fog that's list- lifted. I can now see why. And it's a beautiful moment. So they, the fog that's lifted is now they can see, oh, actually, I'm not a grasshopper and that they're not really giants. There's this, this other dimension that's been going on. Um, so when people realize what their lie is, what do you, how do they overcome that? So what I should have mentioned earlier, is the first thing actually to do is they go, sorry, God, that I didn't believe the full truth. I'm giving that lie back to you and I'm receiving what you're giving. I'm letting it go. And then now the hard work comes for them is that they have to choose to believe a truth now. They have to look at what God said and they have to take that as what they behave off. That's their new belief rather than leave. They have to leave behind their old identity, which is really hard normally because that's what they've done for the last 26 or 52 years, that they now have to change that and choose to behave off a new belief system. But it doesn't take as long as it sounds, I promise. Cool. So quick plug, if anyone wants to explore this counseling journey, how do they do that? You can email burnkloof at OTC, or you can email me at counseling at otc.org.za. And how, the biggest question of all, how do you spell counseling? Is it with a C or an S? Well, the first letter is a C. Oh, that's then true. it's an S, and then double L. Cool. Can we give my wife a hand? <laughs> See, we can have these things that shroud our vision, that cloud our vision, that make us see things for what they aren't really, see them for the way they aren't really supposed to be seen. And so we see the giants as bigger than they really should be. And we see ourselves as smaller than we really should see ourselves. But there were these other two guys who saw it differently. And let's see where we can learn from them. And Numbers 14 says, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, 
who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land and a land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Do not, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid for the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord, can someone say the Lord? The Lord. Mm. Uh, this is when I wish I was preaching in a black church. Uh, <laughs> but the Lord is with us. Amen. Yes. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, all 12 of them went into the land and they saw exactly the same thing. They saw their destiny in God, but then they saw giants and 10 of them saw the giants, then looked at themselves and saw grasshoppers, but the other two looked at the giants, might have even seen themselves as grasshoppers, but then looked and saw how great their God is. You see, the solution to our inadequacy is not that we see ourselves differently, it's that we see our God accurately. We don't need to see ourselves differently, we need to see our God accurately. We gotta understand that we serve a great God and there is something that he's got for us. There's something in store for our lives and there might be giants that we have to face in order to go and take that thing. But the good news is, even though you might feel like a grasshopper, you serve a great God. And we got to know who our God is in order to be able to go and take the destiny that he has for us. And stop, it's the, the answer is not positive psychology. It's not higher self-esteem. It's higher God esteem. And knowing who he is and understanding who our God is. And there's two things we got to know. I feel like when I've dealt with this in my life and when I've helped other people through their things. It always boils down to one of two things. The first thing we got to know about our God is that our God is able. God is able to take out your giants. God is able to do this for you. You see, God had already shown himself as able. He had already brought the entire empire of Egypt to its knees. He had already passed over them in the Passover when he didn't bring judgment on their firstborn. He had already separated the Red Sea for them to pass on dry ground. He had already wiped out the Egyptian army. He had already saved them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He had already provided food and water for them in the desert. He had already done so much. God has already done so much for you. If you know God and if you're free and not a slave, God has done so much for you because the Bible says you were dead, but now you're alive. You were in darkness, but now you're in unapproachable light. God has done so much for us. We have to understand that our God is able. Our God is great. Not only is our God able, this is the one I think we struggle with more. God wants to do it for us. Not only is God able to do it, but he wants to do it. And I feel like we struggle with this way more because I, I can sort of believe like if, if there's a God, he must be great and he must be powerful and he's able to do whatever he wants. He's created the whole world. If I believe in God, I already know that he's able, but the fact that he wants to do it for me in my life is where we struggle. And this is why we hear testimonies about how God has done that thing in that person's life and we think things like, I know God, you've done it for them, but I don't know if you're gonna do it for me. And we hear about the promises of God in the Bible. We see what God says about what he wants for us. We go, I understand that God's got that thing, but I don't know if he can do it for me. Because you see, we find it easier to believe in the power of God than in the love of God. 
Because the power of God exists out there. There's a God, he's powerful, I can believe that. But the love of God exists in here and I struggle to believe that that powerful God can love what's going on in here. Because I know what's going on in here and I don't know if God can love what's going on in here. And so I struggle to believe in the love of God and while I know he's able, I don't know if he wants to do it for me. And the reason, the way that we overcome this The way that we overcome whether or not God wants to is by going back to the beginning of the story and looking at the fact that there was a lamb that was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost so that the judgments of God would not be brought upon the people in that house. And Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain. He has been killed. His blood has been shed. His blood is the way that we become atoned. It's the way that we escape judgment from God. And Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus shed his blood for you. Jesus suffered for you. And God the Father sent his son to go through this incredibly painful thing because you were distant from him and he wanted you to come back home to him. God loves you. And when you doubt the fact that God loves you, like every single one of us doubts that God loves you, what we gotta do is we gotta look at that cross where Jesus shed the blood for us and we understand he was the lamb who was slain. He's shown me that he loves me. And I can believe in the love of God, not because of anything that goes on in me, but because he has already established his love in me. And here's the incredible thing. God is able, he can do it, and God wants to do it. We know that Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to stay living in the desert. Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to remain in the desert. He died on the cross because there's a better future that he has for every single one of us. There's freedoms that he wants us to have. There's joys, there's peace, there's blessing that he's got for us and he died so that we can have those things. He doesn't want us to stay in the desert. And we gotta understand that he wants to do this for us. He's already shown the desire by the length and the extent of his love through the cross. He's shown it to us, and we've got to understand that there's a, there's a promised land that God has for us. In order to take that promised land, we might have to go and face some giants. But here's the good news. That cross means that your giants have already been defeated. The giants that are in the promised land have already been taken care of. They've already been defeated at the cross. Look at what Colossians chapter 2 says. When you were dead in your sins, that's Egypt, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's going through the Red Sea. And he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. You see, there might be powers and authorities that have been keeping you in a certain place. There might be powers and authorities that are the giants that you have to go and face. And you might be intimidated to go and face them, but the scripture says that he has already triumphed over them at the cross. Your giant has already been defeated at the cross, but here's the weird thing. Even though your giant's already been defeated, you still have to go and fight. You know why? Because while God wants to do this stuff for us, He really wants to do something in us. And in order to do it in us, he wants to do it with us. 
Because he's a good father who doesn't just do stuff for us. He's a good father who leads us into growing up and maturity where the work that used to exist outside of me now exists inside of me because how God has been faithful to me. And God wants to do something inside every one of us. There is a 12-round heavyweight boxing fight that needs to go down between you and your giant. And you need to put on your gloves, you need to get in the ring, and you need to go and fight your giant. But here's the good news. The fight's already been won. There's no way that you can lose that fight because Christ has already defeated that giant at the cross. But you still got to get in the ring because of how God wants to do something in you. Craig, you can come up so long, bro. I want us to start to believe a few things this morning. First of all, I want you to believe that there's a promised land that God has for you. There's something that God wants to do in you and for you. There are blessings that God has for you that you don't have right now, and He wants you to have them. You've got to start off by believing that. And then as you look at those blessings and you realize, man, in order to get that thing, I've got to face this giant. I don't want to face this giant. I've been intimidated by this giant for so long. You've got to understand your giant has already been defeated, not because you're great, but because God's great. And then we've got to resolve in ourselves. We're going to go and fight that giant, even though we might feel like a bunch of grasshoppers, because we serve a great God. Can you stand And as we sing this final song before we close, I just want to encourage you to resolve in yourself this year to no longer remain in the desert. And sometimes we stay in the desert because we're waiting for ways that God might have provided for us in the past, but God actually wants to do a new thing. He wants to take you into the promised land. We've got to resolve we're not going to stay in the desert We're going to go for the promised land. And if there's a giant in the way, we're going to face that giant because we serve a great God. Father in heaven, I thank you that you love every single person here. I thank you that you have made your love clear by what you've already done for us at the cross. I thank you that the cross stands as a testimony of your love and your goodness. But I thank you that Jesus didn't just die for us. He also rose again because you are a powerful God and we live and serve a resurrected Christ. And thank you that our God is great. And Father God, as people look and they think about what their giants are now, God, I pray in Jesus' name that they would see who their God is. I pray that we would see you for who you are and forget about the ways we think about ourselves and receive a great God who wants great things for our lives and who loves us so intimately. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.